Hi, everybody. Stefan Molyneux from Freedom Main. Hope you're doing well. Here with Candace Owens. She is the spokeswoman and communications director for Turning Point USA, a nonprofit organization with the mission to identify, educate, train, and organize students to promote the principles of fiscal responsibility, free markets, and limited government, thus putting her in direct Cossack-like opposition to the leftist uh, uh, narrative going on in university. You can check out her, uh, let's cross her fingers and hope it's still running at the end of this interview, twitter.com forward slash real Candace O, that's C-A-N-D-A-C-E-O. And of course, Turning Point USA is tpusa.com. Candace, thanks for taking the time today. Wonderful to be back. About a year later. Yeah, it was about a year, right? And um, boy, uh, things have changed. (laughs) It changed quite a bit. So for those who don't know, the arc is you did this great video about coming out as a conservative, playing your parents and so on, which was just hilarious. We'll put a link to it below. And you were just starting out, you know, a YouTuber with a dream. And how's it playing out for you? It's been um, much crazier than I could have ever anticipated. I'm so grateful and humbled by the experience. Um, Yeah, I just I wanted to start making YouTube videos uh, just I guess the mission for me was just to inject a different conversation into the black community, which was desperately needed. Well, and I I think you've done no small part in really helping to move that needle, which is fantastic. So let's start with that video that you made and the view of, and I hate to say anything as monolithic as the black community, like it's just one blob. It's like saying Europe. But the view of conservatism among blacks has really changed over the last year. You certainly had something to do with that. So where did it start and where do you think it's changing to now? You know, I think it would actually be a fair critique if you said that it was monolithic because it was. Um, We, as a community, uh, felt that we had to be Democrats, felt that we had to be liberals. And this is something that we didn't just come up with magically in our own heads. This was taught to us. This was systematic. Um, We learned this in in the school system, which was the the first vertical that I talk about. Um, We learned this because of the breakdown of the black family, which started taking place in the 1960s. And when um, the parents are separated, when the single motherhood rate jumps from 25% to 71% in the black community, and you remove the structure from the home, People that grow up in those communities tend to look at the media and culture and tell them what's right and what's wrong. And that was a huge vertical um, that I wanted to attack. I knew that it had to be done through culture, through the media, because that's where our attention span was held. Uh, people like Beyonce and Jay-Z uh, became the idols for what we should think. And of course, they were out there projecting liberal ideas and saying that they were with her. So it was definitely going to be an uphill battle, but I saw a very clear way in which it could be done if somebody <laughs> believed in my crazy idea that it could be done. And of course, Charlie Kirk did. So I was very fortunate in that way. Well, and this reversal of the roles of the major parties has been really effectively done, you know, to the point where everyone thinks now that the Republicans were the slave owners and the Republicans were the KKK mongers and the Republicans drove like Jim Crow and segregation and so on. It really is. It's a 1984 style rewriting of history that, of course, leads people down a particular path that I don't think is good for them at all. Correct. That, that's exactly correct. So um, we had to attack all those verticals. So education system is what Turning Point USA was doing, right? They were storming college campuses with conservative ideas, capturing these moments to see how crazy and out of touch liberals really had become and how violent they had become so that people can sort of see a different version. Because I think in people's minds, they think liberals are peaceful and that they're they're about freedom and diversity. And uh, something that Charlie always says is that college campuses want people to look different, but think the same. And that's very true. And they were not welcoming of diverse thought. And for me, I knew that if we could take back culture and media, and what I mean by that is that a lot of the conservatives that came before me were very serious, and that's okay. I mean, Dr. Thomas Sowell, a brilliant man who I read every single night, uh, uh, Dr. Ben Carson, Dr. Condoleezza Rice, right? Uh, They had all the right ideas, but in the manner that they were communicating, it wasn't working uh, because that isn't the way that the black community communicates, if you will. So in, in, going onto the YouTube platform and doing these sort of flash in the pan videos um, that were short and witty and funny and making fun of liberals, making it sort of like a quick Saturday night live skit of something that's going on. That was very strategic on my part. Um, and I knew that that would be something that would grasp their attention. It'd be quick enough that it would hold their attention and it would leave them feeling like they wanted to be, whether they hated me or loved me, they wanted to be a part of the action. And in the beginning it was a lot of hate and now we've sort of <laughs> turned the corner. So that's good. No, that, that's true. I love those guys too, but there is old, old school to the point where it becomes a little bit of snooze 
smooth school. And you you do need a little bit of, of flash and pizzazz to to get people's attention these days as the attention span shrinks. You know, like I, I do 12 minute videos and people are like, well, this could be cut way down. It's like, it's only 12 <laughs> minutes to explain a complex idea. It's really not that big. It's not that long. And And the funny thing is too, of course, according to leftist narrative, you should be enormously praised for bringing diversity to the black community, <laughs> breaking up a monolith of so. thought. <laughs> and I'm a woman. I'm at the top of the progressive stack in terms of people that they say that they want to promote. But of course, we know that that's dishonest. We see in the treatment of Sarah Sanders and the treatment of Ivanka Trump that they, they don't want women to be strong. They want women to project the ideas that they want projected. And if you go against the pack, which I've done numerous times, the second thing that I'm really passionate about which um, is in all of the, the DNA of all my videos, aside from the black community, is destroying this feminism. <laughs> it's not feminism. Oh, um, oh, we'll have time to get to feminism in just a moment. <laughs> yeah. but, um, so when, when you opened up this, this poll, was it 36% black approval uh, of Trump now? Uh, that's got to that's feel pretty good. You have no idea. I, I mean, I was like skipping that day. There was nothing that anybody could have said to me, um, especially because I took so much criticism. Oh, Candace is making it up. And I was saying to Charlie, this is real. We were looking, we were observing it on the ground, observing it in, in the movement, in the comments on my social media. It went from people hating me, calling me Uncle Tom, calling me a coon, to almost this ideological um, civil war that was taking place where black people would be defending me and black people would be fighting and, and, and fighting one another, which to me is what I always wanted. Because if they're fighting ideologically, that means they're not agreeing, which means that we've broken the monolith. Okay. It's okay to disagree with me. Um, it wasn't okay that we were sort of walking like bots and just all agreeing and all in step. Um, so to see these people arguing, that sounds insane, but there's no harm that comes from having an ideological debate. Um, it was, it was really beautiful. And I knew it was happening. And then to have that verification come from Rasmussen, which was one of the only polls that predicted that Donald Trump was going to win. Um, it was brilliant. It was a really special moment. Well, and there's no reason to stop at 36, right? <laughs> we just, no, no, we're just gonna keep going to keep on going. Now, yeah. this, um, I almost feel like uh, with minority communities and Hispanics also gone up, I think about 10% approval, is that They've been told about the free market. They've been told about limited government as if, well, you know, the free market, it was just all about slavery and it's all about oppression and it's all about exploitation. But then when someone comes in like Trump, who has some genuine free market principles, and it's like, wow, I have a job. I have pride. I have reason to get out of bed in the morning that, that makes me feel good. It's like the uh, people are getting, no, it's not just in the black and Hispanic community. They're getting like an empirical demonstration of the free market and what it can do for you. That's exactly correct. The empirical demonstration was the only way that it was going to happen. So the only way that you can override programming is with experience, right? So if I read a bunch of articles that says Stefan Molyneux is uh, a racist, he's a sexist and all of this stuff, and then I go and I actually see you and I spend time with you, there's really nothing that can be written about you um, afterwards that I, I will believe because I had an actual experience. So recreating those experiences is what we've, we've been trying to do, right? Getting people in front of different ideas, getting them to to come to the event because maybe they thought they wanted to boycott us and then they hear what we say and they go, okay, that wasn't as crazy as I was expecting based off all of these articles that I was reading. I think a lot of these students expect us to descend on campus and say white power, <laughs> white nationalism and, and, and then we get there and we're like, hey, free markets is a great solution to poverty and here's how and here's the actual history of socialism that nobody's telling you about and do you remember Mao and, and do you remember Fidel Castro and do you remember Stalin and here's how many people died under those regimes and 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 presenting them with just knowledge and facts and they go okay now why why is it that the media wanted me to believe that this person was a white supremacist right that questioning planting those seeds of doubt is, is what it's all about and that's what we do I think tremendously effectively. Well, it's wild to have a right of reply that sometimes feels almost bigger than the media itself. You know, like I went to do this New Zealand-Australia talk with Lauren Southern, and yeah, it was called The Most Appalling Things. And, and yet the interviews that we just kind of filmed on a, on a cell phone are doing 20 to 30 times the views of the actual hit pieces. And, and that's a pretty wild thing to be able to sidestep the people who were lying about you and speak directly to the world never happened before, uh, like on the history of the planet. And, and that is... I mean, even, even a couple of years ago, I think it would have been tough to hit that ratio. But man, the amount of skepticism out there for the mainstream narrative is huge and growing. Correct. And then that's, and as you mentioned, that's due to social media. And that's why now they're attacking the social media platforms. That's We saw this with them banning the Alex Jones channel. We saw this with Facebook had me in jail for seven days. Twitter, I had an instant ban that got reversed because people created a firestorm. 
but they're starting to understand that, that that is sort of the flaw in their programming, right? So they can lie and they can lie, but if people are able to get around the lies by creating their own platforms, um, then they have what they identify as a problem and, and they're going to try to stomp it out. Not It's going to be to their own detriment, though. Like banning people like Gavin McInnes off of platforms, it's not going to help them. It's going to be an e- equal and opposite effect, in my opinion. Well, it's such a tragic thing. You know, I welcome competition in this sphere because I know that competition is going to make me better. It's going to make you better. I like having that kind of challenge. So for me, it's like the mainstream media. It's like, you know, like the end of Raging Bull when the guy's kind of fat and tanked out and it's like, I'm going to go back in the ring and you're facing someone in their prime who's been working out really hard. And it's like, well... You're going to lose, but what you could do is you could take that as a sign to get back and start get in the gym, start training, you know, eat better, and 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 they could become more honest. They could become more truthful. They could become less horrible. Uh, but they're just well, not really happening. taking. It's like, oh well, I can't beat this boxer, so I'm just going to put something in his coffee to make him groggy. Right, but I, for them, it's not about competition. It's not about the challenge. It's about power. It's it's way bigger than that, right? They're not interested in. Oh, they're not upset because Candace Owens has a bigger platform or Candace Owens gets more views than Brian Stelter or Jake Tapper. They're upset because they're losing power. The media is there to ensure that we vote a certain way, right? To make sure that um, we support certain candidates in office and certain people and certain narratives in government, right? And if, if we destruct that and the media is no longer able to control that part, that portion of the way that we think, that's what that's what they're fighting with right now. That's what they're upset about right now. It has nothing to do with competition between me and Jake Tapper. Their network is about control and power. And they're seeing that disrupted in a major way right now. Oh, man. And, and I think as a propaganda arm for the leftists as a whole, I think that kind of power is really addictive. You know, it's one of the great things that Christianity says is all great things are susceptible to corruption by the lust for power. And, um, that, I think, has really happened with the media. And I think the tech companies are getting infected with that lust for power and lust for control as well. And I don't think they're doing a very good job of fighting back against it so far. They really have to be sheep herded into doing the right thing. Right, exactly. I, I do hold a candle out for Twitter. Um, <laughs> I had a conversation. I know it seems insane, but I, I did have a conversation with Jack a while back. He's good friends with Kanye West. And they are doing a lot that they're not publicizing on the back end um, of talking to a lot of conservative speakers that you'd be shocked and and trying to have. And you can sort of see it seems like Facebook and YouTube are in lockstep and Mm. Spotify and, you know, and and Apple. But Twitter's always sort of been this anomaly. And of course, because that's sort of the platform that conservatives Twitter in a weird way needs conservatism. Right. What who are the biggest people on Twitter? you got Donald Trump. you got Kanye West. And and these people are, are conservative thinkers. Um, so there's there's a weird uh, relationship between us and Twitter. And I think what I try to um, remember is that these companies are big. It's not about one person. So if, if you go to San Francisco, where all of these companies are based, um, and you're hiring people around the San Francisco area, you've got an entire company that are filled with uh, blue hair, green hair, uh, crazy leftists. And if they're the people that get to decide who gets banned or who gets a strike, and they're the people that are watching the sh- watching what happens on the platform. It's certainly not Jack Dorsey, right? Jack Dorsey's job is not to sit there and say, Candace tweeted this, it goes away. They they give off that power. Um, I think it's it's a bigger job than we like to think to sort of reverse a lot of that stuff. Hopeful. I could be wrong, but I'm holding a candle out for Jack Dorsey. Jack, if you're watching this and, and you prove me wrong, I'm going to be very upset. <laughs> no, listen. I mean, uh, Jack, is uh, he's identified the problem. He's admitted the bias. Uh, he didn't ban Alex Jones. And so, uh, you know, the props to, to the guy. I mean, we definitely want to throw our support behind people who are trying to wrangle this beast. And as you're right, they're, they're inheriting all of the program bots from the leftist schools uh, and have to deal with that. And you can't have like some giant deprogramming session, you know, during orientation. You kind of have to work with the people you have. And a lot of people you have, especially if you get them through university, they've been kind of programmed. So I do. I mean, I have a lot of sympathy for the people who've been programmed that way. Let me tell you a little funny story, though, just if you indulge me for a sec. So when we were in, uh, I think it was Adelaide, um, we, would, we were getting ready to do the speech and there were the protesters outside. And it's just fine, you know, protesters, great, you know, uh, Lauren went out to chat with them. I went out, but they'd already left by that point. But anyway, it was raining and it really was getting sad because, you know, being leftist, they hadn't prepared for anything. So they didn't have any umbrellas, right? <laughs> and they're standing out there, you know, like the, the the blue eye dye is like kind of running down like, like a melting <laughs> raccoon. They got the blue hair rinse kind of going down their foreheads in the rain and so on. We, we felt so, so bad for them. We're like, let's bring them some umbrellas. You know, we prepared, even though we're indoors, we prepared, you know, and, and so we brought them out some umbrellas 
And they were, of course, completely stunned because naturally they expected us to attack them with an umbrella because that's the kind of world that they live in. Anyway, so we gave them their umbrellas and then they took them. <laughs> they stole them when they left. Sorry, they socialized sense. the umbrellas. And I just exactly. thought... Everything is free. Everything is free um, <sighs> when you have a socialist mentality. So I'm not shocked by that. But it, yeah, they, they do have a look, that's for sure. And especially the, the gang, Antifa... They have, I mean, they're they're very easy to identify. It's they they hate society so much they want no part in it. So they they don't shower. They've got you know they look like you know the trolls from the nineties that used to have the straight up green or oh yeah yeah it's like you you, you spin your pencil and they poof it up right yes yes and it, it and it's insane and it's, it's it's very interesting though to understand that they are organized right who's behind it that's the question that I keep asking is who's behind it because what Charlie and I saw that day when we were in the cafe and we got chased out by Antifa, that was a well-funded, coordinated effort. We went from sitting down and having Antifa members that were diagonal from us and four of them eating breakfast to having 25 of them at our window on a Monday morning at 8 a.m. So they sent out a bat signal. It's not like these people had jobs, right? You can't just go, hey, I'll be right back. I have to go you know, get into my Antifa gear and protest someone eating breakfast. This has to be their job, right? So that is something that I think we're going to be seeing more coming out about because it, it definitely is a well-funded um, operation going on there. They don't look personally very well organized. Uh, no. and, and like their lives seem very chaotic and messy and hygiene is not a priority. Teeth care doesn't no. seem to be big but on. So there's it's got to be some outside force that's organizing these people. And that's kind of funny too. I was thinking this morning how the media thinks I'm such a terrible person. They knew I was going to have a white supremacist on this show at some point. They just <laughs> didn't think... That it would be this kind of look. So, yeah, let's talk a little bit about, for those who don't know that story, so you and Charlie are having breakfast, and you just get surrounded, chased out, and they're screaming, and it's really, it is really shrill and annoying, you know, shrieking is not an argument, blowing a whistle is not an argument, chanting is not an argument, that's got to be kind of surreal. Yeah, it was surreal. So for the story goes, we just went to breakfast. I picked the cafe. It was totally my fault. I was like, oh, there's this good cafe around the corner, and uh, when we walked in, there were four people that were unshowered, unkempt, and Charlie was like, they're in Antifa because he recognized the decal and they just started sneering. They recognized him first and they recognized both of us. And they were looking back at the table, but we completely underestimated them. We just thought, okay, they're well, in don't Antifa. Don't you start to interrupt, but don't you hate the idea that you walk in and you see some people and it's like, well, we're going to have to leave now. We're going to have to go. So like, don't yeah. you hate that? Like you just can't go and have a damn breakfast. That's what, that's what we were thinking. We're practical. The last thing we thought is we have to leave. We just thought they're in Antifa. They're allowed to have breakfast, whether they're in this Antifa gang or not. We work for an organization called Turning Point USA. We're allowed to have breakfast regardless when they think about us. And we just went about having our breakfast. So we were shocked when 20 minutes later we look up at our window and we see people with bullhorns and whistles. And, of course, then the people in the restaurant who said nothing to us but they looked back suddenly were emboldened because they realized that their friends had arrived and they stood up and were like, you know, get the F out of here, you white supremacists. And then somebody came in and it was just an absolute disaster and a mess. Um, and it was, it was just interesting because the, the police force, if you don't know about Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, it's a black city, 44% black. That's ex excluding other minorities, 44% black city. I always make the joke when I walk around here, I don't know if there's any white people in this city. I live here in Philadelphia. So um, to have an all black police force, there was only one white officer, you know, protecting me and Charlie um, versus this all-white gang calling us white supremacists and calling the police force race traitors. It really shows you just the madness, the absolute madness on the left. And ultimately, fundamentally, they're, they're racists, right? They can't believe that black people don't agree and think the way that they think that we ought to think. That is, that is, that is racism at the end of the day. And you're using these tactics that they used in the 1950s. You've got a bullhorn in my ear. Because they're not interested in dialogue, upon. They're interested in having one of us react, right? Because when you put a bullhorn in someone's ear, human instinct does override you. You see, there's a point in the video where I'm like, get that thing out of my face, right? That was like really trying to keep it together here. Um, and that's what they want. They want you to punch them in the face. So they can say, I got punched in the face by a white supremacist who happens to be a black woman. <laughs> oh, no, it is wild. I mean, we, we tried debating with, with protesters and uh, just epithets and screams. And uh, man, it, it is really chilling. It is, it is like looking down an abyss into a truly barbaric era where people settled their differences by hitting each other on the head with rocks rather than any kind of recent dialogue. And we really, really got to keep society away from that pit because I think once you fall down that pit, it's really, really hard. Look, the Dark Ages last for like a thousand years. It's really hard to get back out. 
It is. And you, they, they are, you're correct. They're like the Flintstones, you know, and, and they're, and they're, they literally just shriek. It's they, at a certain point you'll see in the videos, they're just screaming like a blood curdling animalistic scream. Like I'm at a zoo in the wild observing people. And we were looking at each other like, wow, this has really gotten insane. And it's because conservatives aren't allowed to eat breakfast in Philadelphia um, because we hold conservative principles, because we we actually love our country. We support the police force. We don't believe in anarchy. Um, and me, I don't believe in, I hate when people say reverse racism, racism against white people, right? Because that's what we're seeing tremendously on the rise in this country. And that was the point of me demonstrating that via the Sarah Zhang tweets. Um, is that we've 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 gotten to a point where people think that somehow it's virtuous to be racist towards white people, and that somehow it's virtuous um, to acknowledge that an entire race of people are victims. I don't want to be a victim, right? I'm not your I'm not your puppy that needs rescuing, right? <laughs> I'm 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 very proud of my family history. I'm aware of what my family went through, and I think that there's no value in being a victim long term. Well, okay, so I mean, that's a very very important point, and it's something that I've talked about on this show, but. I mean, I can certainly look at, at blacks throughout uh, American history and say, oh, absolutely victimhood, for sure. Exclusion from the political process, slavery, Jim Crow. Like, I get all of that. That's, But here's the problem is that if you correctly identify people in the past as victims, the question is, does that harden into a permanent narrative? Is there flexibility in, in allowing people to break out of that? Because once you're invested, and there's a lot of political capital invested in black victimhood, can you then allow for that to change over time? Is there a time where it's permissible to say, I reject the victim role, I you know, live in a country with great opportunities, the blacks uh, population in America is the wealthiest black population in the world, there is a free market uh, and, and there is a lot of support, in, certainly in the white community, for blacks doing well and, and getting better and so on. Is there a time where the victim narrative becomes not something that's historically accurate, but something that limits your future enormously? Of course, that's exactly what it's about. Currently, it's about limiting our future enormously. I always say I want to be a victor, not a victim, because when they strap you into the idea of being a victim, there quite literally is no value. You start going backwards at a certain point. And what I've been trying to demonstrate to people is look at the statistics. Black people economically in this country in terms of our job is jobs and the, the job rate growth, we were doing better during the Jim Crow era than we're doing now. That's insane, right? And I tell them, this, these are numbers. You can't dispute this. Explain to me how this happened because we allow them to convince us that we're victims and therefore we deserve handouts. But of course, the handouts are meant to hurt us, right? You give us welfare and, and, and you give us food stamps and these things over time have rotted our communities because the way the welfare system works in America, of course, is, okay, we'll give you $400 to go towards your rent. And, and because you have a job that pays you $8.25. But if you ever make more than $8.75, we're going to take away the $400. So there's no incentive for them to ever make more money because they're afraid of losing the no money that the government is giving them. And this is what's happened in our communities. And I go out and I speak about that. And I try to get them to understand that, uh, you know, LBJ, Lyndon B. Johnson, this was a strategy meant to, he gave the quote, I'll have those N-words voting Democrat for the next 200 years. This was actually a strategy. I talked to them about the real history of Margaret Sanger. I was horrified in D.C. a couple of weeks ago going through um, a museum and she's being honored. She is a known on the record racist who believed that she had to invoke these eugenicist strategies and start Planned Parenthood so that she could literally make sure that black people were not reproducing, you know, because they and, and during that time in the progressive era, they really did believe that um, that genes were, were being murky, that, you know, this, the, the, that we were losing our race. The, the biggest novel uh, during the progressive era was The Passing of the Great Race. And a novel written by Madison Grant, and it's actually Hitler considered it his Bible, right? And they believed that that genes, that you could actually murky genes over time. So they were all about purifying it. And it wasn't just black people, okay? It was Italians. It was it was um, people that were coming from southeastern Europe that were all treated terribly in this country. We actually put a stop on immigration altogether from those countries because they were worried about the checks coming over. So. Um, it's people just don't know history, period. They think that black people are special snowflakes. Irish people need not apply signs everywhere in this country. And by the way, there's an argument that could be made that that wasn't even a form of racism. When Irish people came here, they actually did bring over famine um, in their communities and it, it made people very sick. Uh, so people didn't, they wanted them sort of excommunicated, but over time this became racism towards the Irish even when there was no famine. So groups in this country have been discriminated against since the beginning of time except for, you know, Nordic countries, um, they've always been discriminated against. That's why I try to tell people is that 
why now we loop white people all under the same balloon? Italians, uh, Irish, German, they're all just whites. It's based off the color of the skin. And, and that's just, it's wrong. It's just pointedly wrong. <laughs> well, and of course, there were whites uh, historically in America, a few percentage of points uh, of the family's own slaves. And then there are whites who've come to America recently uh, who have nothing to do with the history, but it's all one big blob. And yeah. it's like, oh, Guilty. man, come on. Guilty as charged. You're white. You know what I mean? Um, the Japanese people, we had them in internment camps thinking about what happened and, and because of um, Pearl Harbor and afterwards, too, again, in the 1970s, Japanese people were treated terribly. Asians were treated terribly. And here also in Canada, they were treated terribly. And they're at the top of society right now. So yeah. the idea that somehow going through something means you can't get ahead has it, it's been shown that that's not true. And the only way that people do get ahead is by not relying on government their own communities, getting together on their own communities and fixing the problems that are in their own communities. The black community has been solely dishonest. And that's what I pretty much say every time I have Black Lives Matter protesters is that we've been dishonest. We don't want to look at ourselves and say, what can we fix? And it's easier to point the finger and say, all white men are evil. And that's why I'm here. That's wrong. We've made mistakes. We've allowed the government to keep giving us more, which was actually less. And if we don't start reversing that and realizing that we don't need the government to fix our problems, in fact, the government has handed us our problems, we're going to be in the same situation in the next 60 years and fulfill LBJ's promise. Well, wouldn't it be great uh, if social media and voices like yours were able to cut that 200-year thing just a little bit short because he couldn't really have anticipated it. Yeah, yeah. And the other thing too, uh, and I remember this from well, my, my Jamaican friend when I was a kid uh, who, who was fatherless, and, and there was this big problem, which is that if you get a father into the home, if you're on welfare, if the father comes into a home or if a man comes into the home, it can be a big problem for your welfare payments. In other words, they're paying for the single motherhood, which is pretty toxic, both for the little boys and the little girls. You need two parents to raise kids. Like, I, I, you know, it'd be great if we could make up a world where that biologically just wasn't the case, but you really do. And the welfare state, by splitting the family, like, you know, axe and wood <laughs> apart, is really brutal on kids. What a bizarre thing to do. And that's what I tell people, that the... The Democrats have quite literally, via, via LBJ and the welfare system, they have incentivized children being separated from their parents. So it's quite ironic when everybody wants to be up in arms about illegal immigrants separated at the border. I'm like, you guys subsidize this in the black community. You literally subsidize this. You you say to someone, you come with your inspections and in, in the wel welfare inspections, and if the man lives at home, they get less money. You, you like family separated, and people don't know that. They're just not educated. So when I'm like, you can completely miss me. People, oh, kids, how could you not be up in arms about the illegal immigrant issue? Because they quite the same people that are out there shrieking about these kids that are separated at the border quite literally support subsidizing that happening in the black community. The same people that are shrieking about children being separated at the border quite literally didn't breathe a peep about the 71 people that were shot in Chicago two weeks ago and the 60 people that were shot in Chicago over this past weekend. Nothing. You'll hear nothing about it. They don't care. Because you know what? Those are Democrat-run communities. This is all about power and politics. And they try to use emotion to get people to vote and do what they want. Right now, they have an issue. The black community is waking up. The black community also, if you look at the statistics of our population growth, we haven't grown. We've just, been, we've just been flatlined. And this is partially due to the 900 black babies that are aborted every day, 17 million since 1973. 50-50. 50-50 chance if you're a black baby of making it out of the womb. That's incorrect. 61%. No, don't tell me that. It's still the morning. Oh, no. 1%. You have a higher chance of surviving the black plague than oh. surviving a black woman's womb. Okay? Oh, no. 1%. Okay? So, and people want me to be up in arms about it. It's just they're, they're the massive hypocrites. Massive hypocrites, and, and they've destroyed our communities. And it's, it, now they're invested in the Latin community because they are, their population growth is booming absolutely booming. So they represent to them a new frontier of potential voters. That's it. Well, and uh, people are always blown away by this when I point out, say, well, the black community, well, you know, the slavery and blah, blah, blah. It's like, man, uh, black fathers under the time of slavery, there's countless stories of, of black men like risking life and limb crossing state lines just to be reunited with their families. And in the 1920s and 1930s, black families in some locations were stronger and more together and for longer than white families. I mean, are people going to try and tell me there was no racism in the 1920s and 1930s? It makes no sense. It does make no sense. And I, I grew up in a household with my grandfather, and he, to me, is just the, the 
he is what everything a man should be. I mean, he raised his, he got married. He was 17 and my grandmother was with her until her dying day. Morals, they put God first, family first, you know, and that all deteriorated. And and when you think about my father's generation, that all went away. Mm. Something happened around the 1960s. The people that were born in my, in my grandfather's generation, the 1940s, who was born in 1941, they figured something out. They were working hard. Yes. Was he born in a situation where there was racism? Of course. He he had the KKK attacking his home at night. He was born in North Carolina in a segregated South. Of course. But in terms of what he was able to accomplish in his life, he did better than my father did. That is remarkable to consider. And that's what I asked. I, I just put the question, how is that possible? What happened? What did we as a community do differently from the 1940s until around the 1960s? And what are we doing differently now? We have our hands out when we're accepting government um, handouts. Well, it's funny because I remember when my mother's mother came to visit that because my mother was kind of like a boomer and, and there's this whole chaos around the boomers and the, the very untutored. They just gave up on teaching any kind of values for the most part to their kids. And I remember sitting across as a kid from my grandmother and she just seemed like almost like a completely different species, like a, a pious and, and serious and sensible and, and a good listener and, and able to have. And the chaos of my mom, it was like, how could all of this change so much in one generation that, that you just go from all of the accumulated wisdom, which is kind of the conservative argument, right? That we've kind of painfully accumulated all this wisdom over time, you know, and, and you can just detonate it in like one generation. You can just undo that entire cathedral that the West built and, and, and we had for a thousand or two thousand years. Can boom, one generation, boom. My grandpa blames the hippies. I asked him. I was like, <laughs> well, he's not wrong. And I say, how is this possible? And he says, oh, it was all about freedom. And you could marry as many people as you wanted. And you could smoke pot. And this was supposed to be liberating. Well, the thing that was supposed to be liberating is starting to feel a bit like bondage now. Right. So I, I work really hard to sort of reverse all of those trends. It's, you know, why I'm, I'm pretty vocal. I'm a non-drinker. I don't partake in any of that stuff. Um, I'm, I'm, I, I talk about spiritual spiritualism and spirituality, uh, something that Charlie, you know, he's an evangelical Christian. For those of you that are watching, I'm talking about Charlie Kirk. Um, he always has the argument, they stopped teaching the Bible too in the last few decades. In school, they used to teach the Bible objectively. You didn't have to be a Christian. It didn't matter what your religion was. They would teach the Bible in school. So much has changed and nobody wants to start to have those conversations about um, when you talk about school shootings, oh, let's blame the NRA. Ridiculous, right? They want to talk about all of these things, they never want to talk about culture and how much it's changed, how much my grandmother cooked and my grand, my, my father and his sisters um, ate every single day around the table. They had dinner around the table. When we woke up in my grandfather's house, we would read a, pa a, passage, a passage from the Bible um, for breakfast every morning. And he'd go around and ask us questions about it. And I hated it. I'm not, you know, I absolutely hated it when I was a kid. And now I look back on it and I'm like, wow, that was so grounding. And the more that I, be I become you know, more conservative because I was a liberal and that's when I was kind of a terrible person, to be honest. <laughs> and the more that I become more conservative, I feel like I become a better person. I become closer to all of those things that my grandfather was trying to instill in me as a child. And these are the, the kinds of real conversations that need to take place that you and I are having right now in the black community, in all communities, not just the black community, but especially in the black community. Well, to me, this is very reductionist, but conservatism is about prevention and liberalism is about cure. In other words, unwed mothers yeah. is a big problem. So conservatism says, you know, don't have sex till you get married or use protection. And, and you know, we really aim to have two-parent families. And if there's a single mom phenomenon, then we're going to try and get that kid into a two-parent home through adoption and that kind of stuff, right? So it's all about preventing these problems, whereas the liberals are like, yeah, go do what you want. And oh, wow, we got a lot of single moms. I guess we need a giant welfare state now. And it's like, it's all about this supposed cure that actually just encourages more bad behavior. I love that. That's so, that is really, really smart. And, and, and saying that in that same vein, it's not even about them trying to find a cure. They also try to make it seem like it's empowering. Right. Like <laughs> right. being divorced three times is empowering. You don't need a man. Right. Like this. Then that's why I hate feminism. And I've been such a vocal non-feminist. And I realized there are we don't need men. Yes, we do need men. Quite literally, we need men like the whole the whole species would die off. Right. If we didn't have men. And, and they demonize things like the church. They demonize things like two-parent homes. And they, they oh, it's antiquated. It's old. It's it's uh, it's Puritan. And, and that's what's caused to me, in my opinion, that's been the source of all of the problems that we have in society today is the demonization, especially when you talk about masculinity and what it means to be a man today. It is pathetic 
These little boys are pathetic. Looking at these Antifa protesters with blue hair and you're screaming and shrieking because you don't know how to deal with the fact that somebody has a different opinion than you. That's really the, t the terror and the trauma that you're going through in your life versus the men in, in World War II, the average age was 23 years old. Those boys knew they were going to die when they were sent over, right? They, they, the odds of them, especially when they stormed, you know, Normandy Beach, um, it just think, just think about everything. And they stormed Normandy and Omaha Beach, everything that they, they had to go through when they were younger. That was real manhood. But I think of my grandfather, he was, he's such a man, you know, and they demonize that. Masculinity is wrong. It's toxic. They put, you know, these words in front of it. It's toxic. Well, if, if you don't need a man, I guess you don't need any male taxpayers then, do you? Don't need any government. Don't need any redistribution. It's like, <clears throat> no. And, and to me, this is, you have to demonize people you're exploiting. Otherwise, it might provoke your conscience, right? So uh, the whole feminism rests upon massive trillions of dollars of redistribution from largely male taxpayers to largely female consumers. The welfare state is the single mom state to a large degree. So, of course, you can. I mean, in, in slavery, you had to dehumanize blacks in order to enslave them. Otherwise, you've got a conscience and you're like, that's a human being. You shouldn't be owning a human being. And right. so, of course, feminism in, in exploiting male taxpayers has to demonize them and call them evil. Although it's kind of tough to exploit people you empathize with. That's correct. And and when you actually look at statistics, women are doing better than men in society. You know, they came up with a myth of the wage gap, which is like, oh, it, you need somebody to explain to you why if you go get a job uh, picking out handbags at Vogue and somebody else is working at Goldman Sachs, he might make more than you. Like, you need somebody to explain that to you. All of my friends in college took, took up fashion. Their majors were fashion. Did they, did they think that they were going to have um, you know, the same experience and, and the same wage and, and the same job offers as people that were taking up, uh, I don't know, um, engineering or it's, it's or one of the sciences or one of the hard academics and they actually believed it they just started believing the myth oh look girls make less than men okay but what are the career options you know is is there something what are the paths that you guys are taking in life and they've also put a, a tremendous burden on women because men, women don't want to be men that's when you really think about it women don't want to be men so now they're saying oh part of this liberation is you get to be a man and you get to not only have the kids but then you have to go and and be a single mom and and raise all you know and have all the money in the household it's like that sounds terrible that, <laughs> is, not, that is not what i want so i do not identify as a feminist well when i was uh, being interviewed by uh, a tv station from new zealand well, I, uh, lauren and i were being interviewed and we were talking about the wage gap and the prime minister of New Zealand just, just had a baby <clears throat> and she's going right back to work, right? And I said, oh, well, so she can't be as good a mom then, right? And it was like, oh, you know, like, who? Is it cold in here? Or just is the breeze coming in? Is there a draft of, of evil coming through here? And and immediately this cuts transmogrified into, oh, so you're saying she can't be a good mom. It's like, I didn't say that. So she can't be as good a mom. Because when you're working, you're not with your children. I mean, this is not, this is math. This is like, you can't be, you can't clone yourself. You can't split yourself in two and both go and do things. So right. if you have more of one, you have the other. And if you, it's kind of weird, you can get this kind of equality, but it comes at the cost of your entire civilization. Because if you're going to have this, if you're going to aim for this kind of equality, birth rates drop. And when birth rates drop, Quite interestingly, you kind of run out of people very quickly. And then you have to, you, you feel maybe you have to bring all these people in from the third world. But it's like, okay, ooh, we got more equality, but we're kind of out of people. And that's it for our civilization. That's true. I mean, that's what's going on in uh, Europe right now. The birth rate at 1.3. They're not going to make a comeback. That'll be a Muslim majority country by 2040. Um, probably sooner. That's 2040 is, is uh, putting it nicely. I've looked at all of um, the stats and that's, it's terrifying. You know, their birth rate in France is 8.1 for Muslims, 1.3 for French people. They've got more mosques than churches in the, in the South of France. They're completely giving up their culture. And, and, um, listen, that's also because of the proliferation of the welfare state over there as well. Um, and all these ideas, there's this cultural Marxism that has seeped into our, um, via our universities, into our minds and our brains. And this is what people are advocating for. Not me. I see the world for exactly what it is. And I'm not really afraid of offending people. You know, the world exploded when I said that I didn't support the Me Too movement. That they were like, I mean, that, that was a real pitchfork mentality. And it, it was very clear to me what that was about. Any of these movements that are rooted in victimhood are about gaining power. Right. And, and that's why I don't support Black Lives Matter. I don't support the Me Too movement. I don't support movements that tell people that they somehow that there's virtue in being a victim. And that means that they get to be extreme. Right. They get to, you know, come up with these extreme circumstances, blurring the lines between um, rape and uh, someone hitting on you. Is, it was what was really what was going on. And, and the result being taking down men. 
taking down people that have worked their entire lives because he paid you a, a compliment and, and maybe an off-color comment, um, that was problematic for me. And, I, and I, I'm aware that I've sort of become the battering ram against political correctness and people feel comfortable um, until things go too far. And it's going to take people that are willing to push the boundaries and that are willing to have honest dialogue and conversations about where we're at as a society and what the real threats are, despite your comfort level, right? People don't like to talk about the Muslim thing going on in the UK. People don't like to talk about the idea that there are women that have abused um, the Me Too movement and to, you know, get revenge on men. But those are the real circumstances. Well, there's a funny thing that's happened. And there's this wonderful complexity around Christianity, because you have an eye for an eye, and you have turned the other cheek. And Christianity, at least the Christianity that I was raised with, was pretty tough minded, which was, you know, here are the rules. If you break the rules, that's not good. And people aren't just going to rush in and, and take away all the consequences because that's treating you like a child. You know, like a, a three-year-old uh, takes a, a packet of Lifesavers from a store. You don't scream that they're a shoplifter and throw them in jail because they're three. They're just kind of learning out, right? So you, you go back and you say, well, that's property, blah, 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 right? So there's this funny thing that's happened where it used to be kind of insulting to have all your consequences taken away from you. Like, don't treat me like a child. I made the choice. I'll take the consequences and that really flipped. And it gets made boomer thing, the 60s thing, maybe the hippie thing where it's like, oh, you poor dear, you made a bad, you know, something bad happened to you. You know, you got pregnant out of wedlock. Well, that's okay. Here's all your free healthcare and free housing and free money. And, and it's like, that's, and now I, I understand that. Like, I mean, uh, compassion is, is an important virtue, but man, can it ever get pathological to the point where you just don't have any standards and you're just treating everyone like children. Because if men and women get along, they tend to love each other. They tend to get married. They tend to have kids and they really don't need the government that much. And I think that's one of the big problems. That's exactly right. And, and it's interesting that you bring up compassion because I'm always trying to strike the balance between compassion and realism, right? And the problem with compassion is that that too becomes a form of extremism. And what I mean by that is that there are certain people that think that they're due compassion, right? Which means they're allowed to be terrible people and you can't comment on what they say or do because they've, they've suffered something in the past, right? So one of the, the main arguments that people were saying to me when I said, I don't support the Me Too movement, uh, well, I was raped, therefore, this is what I think about it and how could you? That's not an argument. Right. Like that doesn't there is no conversation that is above intellectual discussion. There's no there's literally no topic that is above intellectual debate, no matter what you go through. It's like saying if you said I don't support black lives matter. And I say, well, I am a black person whose cousin got gunned down by a police officer. Therefore, you must shut up. Right. So they, they try to one up each other with what they've been through in the past, which means that I'm allowed to speak now and you must be silenced. And that's the dangers of a lot of these these movements and these people, it tells people that there's virtue in being a victim. And the virtue is now that you get to have the loudest voice in the room yeah. and you, there, and you can do no wrong. And that is a fallacy. The idea that believing that somebody can do no wrong because they've suffered something in the past when in reality, when terrible things happen to people, they be for a while, at least I know for me, when I went through something in high school, I became a terrible person. Like uh, Charlie always says, hurt people hurt people, right? So bad situations for a while become you. And if somebody tells you that it, rather than processing what you went through and going through that era that you now have the right to be angry and bitter and, and to take out on the world what you went through, it creates a, a cycle of just bad. A cycle of just bad. A cycle like, of just bad. Hey, we have bad. a title for the show. <laughs> no, th th this, it, and that's a very sensitive issue, but, but I, I think I'm just going to be perfectly frank about it. The people who take genuine victimhood and turn it into artificial bullying are terrible people. If you have absolutely Thank suffered, you. then honor your suffering. Yeah, because you know you know what it's like to be victimized. You know what it's right. like to be bullied. So don't turn your genuine victimhood into artificial bullying because you've become what you despise. Again, yeah. something that Christianity really, really warns you against, and so does right. philosophy. And that's the idea of the black community, right? Well, they went through Jim, we, we went through Jim Crow laws and we went through slavery. I personally didn't, but apparently we did. That's the, that's the argument, right? So now we can say anything we want and we can be racist and we can say why people suck and we can say why people this and that. That's, that's crazy because you suffered something, you now are allowed to impose suffering. Is that the argument that we're making? That, that doesn't make any sense. So, and, and the idea that there's permanence in suffering is also fallacious, right? I didn't go through 
the Jim Crow era. I didn't, you know, I did not go through slavery. I've had remarkable relationships with people of all different colors my entire lives. And now I'm being taught in the education system and through the media that I, I no, 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 Candace, you did live through this. You have a right to be bitter and angry and, and to turn your ancestors suffering into hate towards an entire race and into virtue signaling, into believing that you can shut down conversations by saying, but I'm black. So I don't care if you're saying one plus one equals two, Stefan, because I am black and I am telling you that your people, when I tried to say one plus one equals three, made made us suffer. It's insanity. It's just, it's, it's ludicrous. And that's what I'm trying to inject some common sense. If you would like to win a debate with somebody, just have facts, have data. Oh, yeah. Well, the people who say to me, well, you can't, Steph, you're white. You can't understand the black experience. It's like, well, then <clears throat> by that logic, you can't understand the white experience. So don't tell me about white privilege. You know, right. now we <laughs> simply can't talk to each other, but we all have to live under the same rule of law. Oh, this is going to go great. This is going to be a wonderful society when nobody can talk to each other about anything. Oh, I can't wait. Right. That's a part of what I do, too, is inviting white people in to have a conversation about the black community. Just because I am black does not mean that I know every statistic regarding the black community. Actually, in many ways, you could argue that the most ignorant people about the black community are Black Lives Matter. This group Black Lives Matter. I, they blocked me on Twitter because they tweeted after a school uh, a school shooting, NRA is a terrorist organization. They tweeted five lines repeating that, the NRA is a terrorist organization. So I tweeted back at them. Imagine considering yourself a black rights activist group and being so ignorant that you don't know that the NRA trained blacks against the KKK. Like, are you kidding me? Are you that you know nothing about your own history? So of course we dealt with the best way they knew how and they blocked me, right? Silence the truth and, and continue on with your ridiculous tweet because you know nothing about your own history. And that's not their fault. I didn't know anything about my own history either. Charlie knew more about the black community than I did when I started this journey, right? I had a feeling that something wasn't adding up, but I took, I had to do a tremendous amount of studying. I mean, I, I study every single day and every night and I'm learning the truth now. And I never learned it through all of my schooling. I never learned the truth about my own community. I never learned about black history, despite the fact that we have an entire black history month. There's also ludicrous, right? At the same time that we say that we want to be assimilated, we also act ask for separation, which makes no sense. Right? Well, of course, you have to call it Black History Month because race-baiting propaganda month is just too, too much typing. <laughs> now, let's let's talk a little bit about the shootings that, that are going on uh, in these Democrat-run cities because, man, oh, it's horrendous. Like, it, I literally have to sometimes skim over these articles like, please don't let any kids be shot. Please don't let any kids be shot because, I mean, it's rough enough when the criminals are shooting each other. But, you know, you get kids shot in the drive-bys and it's just, ah, oh, man, it's such a weight on the chest. What do you think needs to happen in some of these cities to begin to, to curb this, this feral um, the aggression? Look, so I, I have the approach that the right now, especially in Chicago, I'm always saying Trump wanted to send the National Guard, send the National Guard. The only thing right now that's going to stabilize this community temporarily is the presence of people with bigger guns, right? The only thing that's going to stop a guy um, with, with a smaller gun is a guy with a bigger gun walking around and feeling like, you know, they're under watch. And by the way, that's totally justifiable. We had 4,000 during Obama's era, Obama's eight years in office, he had 4,000 people were gunned down in Chicago. I believe that's right. It's a hit or miss. It's about 4,000 people. Same amount of people died in the Iraq war. It's a war zone. Okay, Chicago's a war zone. Okay. Um, so you have to deal with the war zone the way that you would deal with the war zone. Send the National Guard temporarily. Uh, vote out all the Democrats, right? Understand that the, these cities are impoverished and the violence is happening because it's, it's a vicious cycle, right? And this is what happens when people have nothing. Um, people are more likely to commit crimes when they have nothing. Um, start talking about Judeo-Christian values again, right? Start talking about putting these communities back together, getting rid of the welfare system, okay? If I was president tomorrow, the first thing that I would do would be completely revamping the welfare system. I hope it's something that Donald Trump does. You should, welfare should not be a permanent, permanent structure. If you need welfare, sure, we are happy to help our own. It should be for a couple of years and you're getting kicked off of it. Why are people on welfare for their entire lives? It makes no sense to me, right? It should be something that helps you when you need it most, not because you had a kid out of wedlock and you now are, are, don't want to get a job. If you're an able-bodied individual, get a job. Now there are jobs. We have Trump in office. It's about you know building the communities back up from the bottom. So family, First, very National Guard on the ground, then talking about family tr uh, treating Judeo values and getting these people off welfare and educated in, uh, you know, proper schools. Proper schools. Boy, that, there's a good bridge for us. Proper schools because, man, these, these schools are – they're rough and they're bad. And, I mean, I think the charter schools have some value and you can see, of course, how desperate some of the inner city parents are to get their kids into schools where there's more control. But I think that uh, the education – 
control system is is really rough on on kids, particularly the poorer kids. School choice. I'm pro school choice. Yeah. It's, you know, taking up majorly come October. I'm working on a really big project that we're announcing in two weeks. Um, and we were going to be directly doing one for one campaigns in school choice. And we're going to be doing rallies in Chicago and Detroit and all of these inner cities um, that have been broken down by Democrat policies and just education. And you're exactly right. Giving them the option to go somewhere else for school, having them understand what that means. Right. What a school voucher means. Half of them don't even understand that. They think that somehow. Republicans want to take away the public school system and it, they, they, they don't even understand it because the left has done such a number in terms of owning the media. Um, mm. Thank God for voices like ours uh, have being able to get out different information. And I don't attend to squander that opportunity, especially since everyone is paying attention now. And, and God bless Kanye West. Um, really, people don't understand how significant that was for the black community. Okay, good. So, like, as you know, I'm a stay-at-home dad, so I'm desperate for gossip. I mean, information. I mean, enlightenment. Um, <laughs> but uh, the the Kanye thing, you know, the tweet, the meeting. I mean, please indulge my curiosity. I mean, what was all that like? It was it was surreal because right after I did your interview a year ago, I did Dave Rubin, and people wrote in questions and asked me, you know, wait, can I just do my little imitation of of one of your Dave Rubin appearances? Are you ready? <laughs> You've heard this before. Guys, 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 guys. I do that for about another 20 minutes, but I won't do the whole thing now because, you know, time's yeah, important. Not that one. Not that one. I know. But they had asked me who I looked up to, and I said the only person I look up to is Kanye West. And I felt in my soul that he there was no way he could be a Democrat because all, he's all about freedom, the ability to to think and, and for yourself, not based off of your skin color. Um, and... Lo and behold, I meet Charlie. I make Charlie download all of Kanye West's music. I told him it's like the most freeing sound he'll ever hear. And three months later, he tweets me and he found me, um, someone on his team. He had actually seen more videos of mine um, than I had realized. And I guess he had been watching them and then um, randomly tweeted, I love the way Candace Owens thinks, and subsequently broke the internet because <laughs> they understood that. <laughs> they, they understood what was happening there. That was culture. The left had a stranglehold on culture. Kanye West is at the top of culture. Kim Kardashian is at the top of culture. Lover or hater, this girl can sell a chapstick. She could sit here right now and say, I like this chapstick, and it would sell out in two minutes. She can um, uh, She so, can also raise awareness about the Armenian genocide and other very powerful things as well. So, yeah, it's more than chapstick correct. for sure. That's correct. So for those, for them to defect, if you will, for Kanye West to defect, it was, they knew exactly what was wrong. I mean, you saw how swift Twitter ran the headline, uh, Kanye West supports alt-right. I'm like, alt-right? the most insane thing I've ever heard in my entire life. Um, and uh, the, the blogs, I mean, they went nuts. And, and the response wasn't because Kanye, he didn't even say what he liked that, about what I thought. That was pre before he put on the MAGA hat, right? He didn't even say what he liked. He could have liked um, the fact that I go to Chipotle all the time. You know, it, <laughs> no, 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 no. Come on, come on. The tweet was genius because, and you know this, right? But just for the audience, the tweet was genius because it's not, I like what she says about this. I like her conclusion about this. I like the way she thinks because thinking is a process, which is why people who are ideological can never change their mind because they're wed to conclusions rather than process. Science is a process. Medicine is a process. Thinking is the process. I like the way she thinks, not I like a particular conclusion. That raises curiosity rather than having people coalesce around a particular conclusion. But, but they all did. They did call us. Of course, of course they have to, but I mean, for smart people, yeah. it, right? Okay, exactly. Exactly. And, and it was brilliant. And, and it opened up the dialogue in a way. And, and he um, he doubled down on it. And I knew he would because he's Kanye West. You don't tell Kanye West you're not allowed to like something. And the left is ridiculous. They thought he, they were going to bully him. You know, they've tried that before. They've done it many times to him. He's like a cat when it comes to um, the lies that he's had and suffered and the deaths that he suffered in the media. Um, and he's been all about, he has, he really has been sort of the battering ram against political correctness way before Donald Trump was. Kanye West was being killed for telling the truth. You know, Taylor Swift really didn't deserve that award. <laughs> Nobody ever wants to tell the truth about that, but it was ridiculous that she won the award. By the way, Candace, I, I do hear that some women can be gold diggers. This may come as a shock <laughs> to you, but it could happen. It's true. <laughs> it's true. It of course it's true. They can be. Some and men are shallow and only into appearance, and some women can be gold diggers. I hear that's that true. That's true, exactly. And some people and, and some women do use their sex to get ahead. By the way, no, no, and that's not that's not possible. It. They're all angels <laughs> and victims. <laughs> exactly. I've seen it firsthand when I worked in private equity. So the idea that the, every woman is a victim is a whole other separate conversation. But for him to do this tweet, it changed everything. And then he, uh, you know, we went out there. Did you see it directly, or did someone tell you? 
you know, Nigel Farage's assistant sent it, me a screenshot. Well, that Bizarre. was my next guess, of course. Right? I know. And, and, I, and I looked at it and I, I thought he was joking because I had just gone to dinner with them like a, two weeks prior. I yeah, told yeah. him that I really loved Kanye West. And I was like, is this like British humor? Like, <laughs> I didn't, I thought it was. If so, it's very cruel, <laughs> very cruel humor. Yeah, exactly. So I was like, this is weird. And then I, I saw it and uh, instantly started crying, obviously, because I knew how much it meant. I knew what it meant to the black community. I knew that this was going to open the floodgates and people were going to actually, because they were all going to come find me and see my videos. And once they saw the videos, they were going going to form their own conclusions regardless of what the media was saying about me and they did and the amount of people that said hey i found you on tmz initially i thought this about you i saw you with kanye west um and you changed my mind you changed my heart it's been it's been such a beautiful thing and kanye and i keep in touch we we talk often um and uh he's serious about this this is something that he's passionate about and i was really upset by the way i don't, I don't know if you agree with this but I hate that within our community of thinkers, before they understand something, so many people just wrote articles, Kanye's crazy, conservatives need to ignore him. And I was like, so angry because I thought to myself, wow, are we really going to shoot ourselves in the foot because you're uncomfortable with hip hop and culture and you don't understand? I mean, just say, hey, I don't really get this, but this could be good. You know, you don't understand what culture means to the black community. I get that. You think that it shouldn't come from the black community, it shouldn't come from a hip hop artist. I get that. But it had to, you know, it had to come from the culture and the media because that is where all of our eggs are. That is the basket that we place the most of our eggs in at this moment in time. Well, I mean, if, if, if I had to choose one person to be a gateway drug to diversity of thought to the black community, I would choose Kanye West. Like there, there wasn't, there's not even a second, not even a close <laughs> second. Thank you. Thank you. Right. So that, that's been something that I've observed, you know, we critique the left a lot, but I've also, I can critique things on the right as well is, is that there, there is this, I guess you could say a small circle of people that are have these Puritan conservative ideas, which is like, well, if, if we teach things, it should be done in Dr. Thomas Sowell way and the Dr. Ben Carson way. And they, they don't realize that the battle is, a, we're fighting a cultural war, you know, and a cultural war is culture. It's not, these people are not, I'm not going to say, hey, you should read this Thomas Sowell novel. It'll transform the way you think. They're not going to do that. Um, we have to meet people where they're at. And hopefully once we are able to destroy the idea that they should be listening to Hollywood or the media, um, if you meet them where they're at and you give them a different uh, sampling of what the media can be, then perhaps from then on, they'll never place that many eggs in that basket, you know? Well, it also really bothered me how, I mean, Kanye has a big personality, of course, right? I mean, you don't get to be that big with a normal-sized human personality. <laughs> but the idea that somehow the antics are the person uh, is is kind of silly. Of course, he can sit down and have a conversation just like you and I. I mean, he's famous, but he's not he's not a different species or anything like that. And and mistaking right. this sort of public persona or, or the extravagant aspects. I mean, you know, I, I'll do anything to keep people's attention. I, I mean, I turn myself into half a cartoon character to, to keep people's attention <laughs> for important stuff. But that doesn't mean I can't just sort of sit down, and have a regular conversation with people. And I think mistaking the public for the private is, is silly. And judging people by the merely public persona is, I don't know, it just seems kind of one-sided and, and unidimensional, I guess. People are complex. It is. It is. They discount people. It's like because he raps, he can't create clothes. Well, they told me he couldn't do that. And now he's on pace to be a billionaire by the end of this year because he created clothes, you know, and and people are I, I'm not just interested in politics. I'm interested in hip hop, I'm interested in music. I'm interested in dance. And people are not one dimensional. And they he never came out and said, oh, here are all the reasons. And now I'm a politician and everyone should vote for Trump. He said that he liked Trump. Right. And and that was so important because people were boxed in and believing that if they liked Trump somehow that meant that they were racist or sexist or misogynist. And he opened up that conversation and that dialogue. And and I, I'm, I'm so grateful. I, I really believe that one day in history books, that simple seven word tweet is going to be in it. Like what changed the black revolution against the Democrat Party will be a chapter in some history book somewhere. Yeah. And Kanye West will be mentioned because he played a significant role in something so simple. Well, I think more than mentioned. I think there'll be a chapter on that whole thing. And I mean, almost like a turning point in the USA. But no, this, this really is. I mean, it was. I mean, I remember looking at that thinking, ooh, goosebumps. Like I literally got goosebumps thinking, well, this changes everything. This, right. this changes absolutely everything. Now, a conversation can open up. And 
okay, okay, well, you need a rap guy, a businessman to legitimize. I don't care. I don't care how the conversation gets legitimized. I don't care. It, it can be accidentally skywritten in clouds over Harlem. It doesn't matter to me. What matters right. to me is the conversation begins. Once you take that first That's rock right. out of the stream and then the conversation flows, I don't care how it starts. And the fact that, that, that Kanye tweeted about you and, and then you're going out doing your thing, fantastic. All we need to do is to have that conversation open. And that means that you have to have permission to talk about things without just being verbally abused, screamed at, bullhorned and stuff like that. And he did that. And the level of, of influence that he has, I mean, not just in the black community, which is enormous, but in the youth community as a whole of all races. I mean, the man was, uh, I mean, you know, it's like it's like the old Greek thing, you know, like Zeus like, takes his thunderbolt and throws it at the ground and illuminates the landscape. That tweet, that moment was that. And was uh, that. I just remember thinking, well, th things get That's interesting from here now, don't that. they? <laughs> That was a great way to describe that. I love the, the Zeus Thunderbolt. That's exactly what it was. Um, and it, it allowed us to hit the reset button. And as I said, it opened the floodgates. And again, he is, it, you're right, not just the black community, it, to the, the leftists, the far leftists who follow him um, and love his music. You know, And that's the thing about Kanye West. His album after that was number one in 83 countries. They were saying boycott Kanye didn't work. But that really sort of tells you, to talk about a litmus test for where the consciousness is, is that people were willing to say, okay, it's okay. He likes he likes the way Candace Owens thinks. And, you know, he invited me to his, his album release party, which was surreal. Was, I mean, like- Did, and, did you end up going? I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm sorry, Kanye. I think I might be busy that night. Got something to do with him. <laughs> I'll, I'll put you on the list, though. Wow, yeah, what a thing. From Kanye West. But what was really remarkable is that, you know, it was a predominantly black crowd, and there were all of these hip-hop artists and, and hip-hop bloggers, um, you know, mixed in with bloggers from Rolling Stone and all of these publications. They had all written terrible things about me that week, right? And I get there, and it was just all love. It was all love. It was like, oh, I mean, you're not that bad. They were making fun. They were putting me on their Snapchat, you know, and it, it really helped you to understand that the media, it's assimilation, you know? And that's the one thing I would say, especially with the black community, is like once we get together, you, it, we laugh. We just, we love each other. There's so much love there. There's so much laughter. And they've been trying to now divide us. And they they tried that with the Kanye thing. It's like, oh, well, if you're really black, you're going to have to boycott Kanye. And of course it didn't work because he makes good music. He's a talented artist. And to have those conversations with those people and for them to laugh and for me to actually say to them, no, I just really believe this. And to explain to them what I thought, that was the greatest takeaway. That was the, the story that wasn't told about his album release party was that everybody loved each other. And we all, we all have different political beliefs. And talking to people that lived in Chicago because he, he had flown in people from the south side of Chicago. Um, you know, Connie is from Chicago. And I asked them, do you, you don't like Trump. What do you think about what's going on in Chicago? Every single one of them on that plane said, tell Trump to send the National Guard. Mm. <laughs> Every single one of them. So there are issues that, and, and if we're trying to understand why Trump has been so successful and why he's, his approval rating is going up, it's because there are issues that transcend politics. There are people that are dying. They're burying their friends. They were showing me pictures of people that they were burying. Um, he just died last week. Everybody loved him. He was just walking down the block and got shot. Do you think they're going to care about your personal feelings about Trump if he sends National Guards and resolves that for them so they don't have to bury their, their cousin, their sister, their brother? That's the stuff that matters. Results. The results that are driven by this administration are, is what's going to count in the end. Well, and anybody who understood free market, who understood opportunity, who understood capitalism, everybody who supported Trump knew that this was going to be of particular benefit to the poorest in society. There was, and anybody who says, let's relook at immigration, uh, knows that with less immigration from low-skilled countries, it's going to help the poorest in society. And yeah, there's going to be some whites, some Hispanics. And so to me, everybody who was against Trump either didn't understand the free market, in which case, what are you talking about? What are you doing? It's still a free market country. Or they kind of like the fact that the poorest in society were beholden to the leftist. And that, to me, discredits people immediately. Now, let's talk about what's going on for you coming up over the next little while. Uh, I assume uh, Master of Time, Space and Dimension, uh, traveling uh, uh, to France. <laughs> but um, what are you going to be working on over the next little while that people should be looking out for? I am launching a project in two weeks that I have worked so hard on and working on it since February that will specifically target um, what I see as a mass exodus from the Democrat Party, from the black community, other minority communities, gay, uh, lesbian, anybody that is starting to understand that we are being used um, to turn various groups into single issue voters. And it's I think it's going to burn the place down. You know, <laughs> I'm like, I realized suddenly 
I don't just want to leave a Democrat plantation. I want to burn it down. <laughs> so By the I, way, I, everyone uh, yeah. at YouTube, these are all allegories. This is language <laughs> that is poetic. There will, in fact, be no fire in Candace's future. <laughs> just wanted to point that out because, oh, you know, sa so sarcasm funny. and innuendo and, and florid yeah. language can often be misinterpreted by leftists. So I just wanted to point that out. Right. Exactly. <laughs> no, I agree. I, I mean, I, I think it is uh, it is a very toxic mentality. And I think it has done a huge amount, not just of physical harm, but of psychological harm. Because, yeah, you see the bodies in the streets. But think of all of the people who've absorbed, well, you know this, right? Think of all the people who've absorbed this victim narrative and have absorbed, oh, there's this monolith of white racism that means you can't get anywhere in life. You can't get things done. The huge amount of, of potential that is lost and the huge amount of, of, of lostness that happens to people and the nihilism that comes from it and the temptation to violence rather than productivity. I mean, the, the costs can, can not even be calculated and anything that strikes a metaphorical body blow against this ideology is a huge blow for human freedom. That's correct. The number one thing that they took away from us was our self-confidence. Mm. That's what I, that, and that's, that's what I tell so many of the black youth. We're doing our first ever um, Young Black Leadership Summit, which is just all of the, the black people that have been commenting and they're in college or they're not in college or in the projects and can't afford to it. We want to get them all into a convention and let them hear conservative ideas. The speakers aren't all black. We want that. We, we want to provide a venue for, hey, white people that are really smart. If you could say something to the black community in a safe space, what would it be? And we want them to hear that. There are so many uh, thought leaders that, that they are told they can't listen to, to get the black youth and to let them target a message directly to the black community and say, here is what we've, you guys have been getting wrong. And we've been trying to tell you, but we've been called racist. We've been called sexist. We, here's what we understand. Opening up that conversation again to make it okay for white people to criticize things that are happening in the black community, for black people to criticize things that are happening in the white community without all this concept that somehow um, your color of your skin transcends the conversation. Um, that's what it's about. And we, we often face criticism. Oh, isn't that identity politics to do a black leadership summit? No, it is identity. We are the black community and we are suffering and we do need to hear a message that is targeted directly to us. It is okay to have a community. It is okay to have an identity. We need to never again let our identity be politicized again in the future. And that is why we are doing this Black Leadership Summit in October, which I'm ecstatic about. Fantastic. Well, let me know about that. We'll help publicize it. And just wanted to remind people, check out Turning Point USA at tpusa.com. Link will be below. The Twitter is twitter.com forward slash real Candace O, oh, and uh, she is, of course, the spokeswoman and communications director. I don't know why she's not very good with language, but no, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> to, for Turning Point USA, a nonprofit organization with the mission to identify, educate, train, and organize students to promote the principles of fiscal responsibility, free markets, and limited government. Candace, a great pleasure to chat with you. Thanks for your time today. So wonderful. We got to do it again. Another one year, Mark. <laughs> All right. Take care. Joke, joke. Not really blow up the world. <laughs> <laughs> right. Asterisk. It's just language. All right. Take care. <laughs> Bye-bye.